Good evening. It's awesome being back. Um, thank you very much, Pastor, for uh, number one, that offering. That was very unexpected. And when you gave the offering and, and no one did anything, I was half tempted to come up and maybe do a human video. Um, but I will spare you all that pain. Uh, so good, so good to be back home really is the only way to describe it. This is my home, as Pastor said. Um, my mom actually told me last night, she goes, you, uh, we were actually attending here when I was pregnant with you. And so um, that's over 27 years and a lot has changed. And I said this actually my last Sunday, I stood before everyone and I said, I look around this room and you know I see people who have just invested in my life at different steps, whether it be Royal Ranger leaders, Sunday school teachers, um, mentors when I was in the youth department. And it's so cool to come back and to see all of you and to be back here. And it's truly an honor. I want to thank Jeremy for having me come back and speak. Um, Pastor, once again, for combining the services. That's great. And Dennis, for letting me steal your spot tonight, give you the night off. And um, what a great honor to be back. I don't know if you've heard the news, but it's true. I'm pregnant. And um, I still feel great. Uh, no morning sickness, no nausea as of yet, but we're hanging in there. No, um, Laura and I, were expecting our second child. And that is very, very exciting. My part was easy. Um, we are expecting our second. And everyone always asks, they say, you know, Craig, what do you want, a boy or a girl? And I think the, uh, the token parent answers, you have to reply, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, boy or girl. Either way, just be a total blessing. Um, but we're really hoping for a girl. Uh, I don't think my sanity or this earth could handle two cackly boys running around. Um, but if it is a boy, you know, we'll make the most of it. The next time you see me, I might have like the Gordon Bubolt's platinum hair from stress. Or maybe it will just all fall out, so... Somewhere between a Gordon and a Jeff Wilkie, somewhere in there. <laughs> but we're excited. We are, so, we are super excited. And um, things in Chicago area are going really well. Uh, we work in a, a small rural community. It's a very poor farming community, but God is just up to something supernatural. And that's his business. And we're seeing people from all different walks of life come in and enter into a relationship with him. Um, Bondages being broken, just sin being demolished, and it is exciting to be a part. And so, thank you. We've heard from so many of you that you've just been praying for us, and it's been, it's been needed. Uh, it's been an interesting transition going from being the youth pastor. Me and Dennis were just talking about this earlier today. Transitioning from youth ministry into associate ministry, because they're two different worlds. You know, when I was here... Uh, there are definitely elements of uh, youth ministry I miss. I miss the kids, obviously, but they're just being able to focus on one thing and pour your heart and your soul and all your energy into that thing. And now um, I find myself in more of a position where it's like there's a million different details. And where at once I was like, could play this cool youth pastor, now I'm just a total ministry nerd. I just sit at my desk and adjust my glasses and my pocket protector and so it creates systems and processes, and so it's been by God's grace that he has helped us get through this time, and it's been amazing. And so once again, I can't say it enough that it has just been a pleasure to be here with you tonight, and something I don't take for granted. But seriously, um, tonight I want to talk a little bit about what happens in life when things get shaken up. 
And when I say shaken up, I don't mean necessarily someone grabbing you and physically shaking you back and forth, but what happens when life happens? What happens when the tragedies occur? What happens when the things that we thought we had control over or dominion over disappear and we find ourselves in a state of total vulnerability? See, shaking is interesting to me because what shaking does is it takes us from a state that's totally natural, picks us up, and places us somewhere that is foreign and uncomfortable. How many of you uh, youth, let me just talk to you, because I thought tonight I was going to be speaking to the youth, so I'm going to tell some kind of crazy stories, so you just have to bear with me, adults, youth. How many of you guys remember when we did the, the fun game with the electric chair? <laughs> Parents, I'm sure you're still a little bit angry with me as well on that. What we did was, I talked to Ron Kelly, and he came up to me just one day, and he said, hey, Craig, just want to let you know I've got this electric chair. And it's like, a, it's like a bar stool that's got some bolts on the top with there's an electrical current hooked to it. And um, it's got a, a button where you can press, and it shocks who's ever sitting on the chair. And he said, if you ever want to use this chair, let me know. And so I immediately said, I want to use the chair. So we set it up upstairs, and, you know, we had some games. We'd answer the kid, we'd ask the kids questions, and if they got the wrong answer, we'd shock them. And they'd be like, oh, that hurts, it shocks. Um, and then we'd all laugh. Well, about two weeks later, I'm returning the chair to Ron, and he says, you knew that if you keep pressing the button, you can continue to increase the charge. And so you could, want, you could shock people with the force 5, 10, even 15 times what we were originally shocking with. And so I said, I've got to borrow the chair again. So we get back and we, we do it again. We do the game and we shock people. And what was once like a, ow, that shock was now people jumping out of the chair being, what in the world just happened to me? And we laughed and we had a good time. Well, after service... I look over, and I'd like to say that I didn't see this happening, but I did, and I thought it was funny, so I kind of just let it happen. There was a couple of our kids that were just shocking each other over and over and over again with this chair. And so finally, one of the kids comes up to me, and I'm not even going to say which kid this is. He goes, Craig, look, my hand won't stop shaking. And at that point, I said, we've got to shut this thing down. I can see the headline now. Youth kid dies from youth pastor administering the electric chair punishment. And that's, that's kind of a humorous way to, to prove the point that, you know, this kid's body was acting unnatural because we had unnaturally inserted, inserted possibly hundreds and hundreds of electrical volts into his body. Shaking has the ability to put us somewhere where we do not belong. And... It's easy tonight, and I've given you an example of something that's quite humorous. I was going to tell you another story, but I won't, of just some silly things that we did in high school. But in all seriousness, for most of us, when our lives get shaken, it's easy to laugh, but when it happens in real life, it's usually a very serious thing. When we are shaken to our very core, many of us respond in a way where we, we become completely undone. And it can look different for many of us. I think for you students, sometimes when you get shaken, it can be that you find out that your parents are getting a divorce. You know, maybe deep down you, you knew that something wasn't quite right, but then you have that difficult conversation that mom and dad are separating and they're going to be living in different homes. And this consistency 
this life that you've known has this like a rug been pulled from underneath your feet. Maybe that the, the shaking can come in the form of the death of a loved one, whether it be a physical death or maybe an emotional death. You find out that someone you trusted, someone you confided in, took advantage of that trust, abused that trust, betrayed you, and now that relationship will never be the same. Maybe for you that, that shaking can come in the form of a faith crisis. Something you've been told all your life, something that you believed all your life is now becoming a, into question. You think, is, is my love and, and my relationship with God authentic? Is this something that's birthed out of my heart and my spirit? Or is this something that I've simply been told my whole entire life and I've just been falling into place and going through the motions? This can be a shaking. Tragedies and crises come in many different ways, shapes, and forms. But the ultimate question that we need to ask ourselves tonight is how are we going to respond when those things happen to us? How do we respond when life happens? And tonight I want to talk to you about a man who was truly shaken. I want to talk to you about a man who was shaken to his core and he almost lost everything. And this man's name was Peter. Now, many of you know Peter. He's kind of a, man, he's kind of an all-star, a superhero of the faith. And tonight, the moment, the story I want to share with you about Peter's life, I want to pick up in a very memorable part of Scripture, and it's the Last Supper. And so many of us, before I jump into the Scripture, I'll give you a little bit of a background context. We've got the Last Supper. Jesus knows full well what's going to happen. He knows that he's going to be handed over. He knows that he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be beaten, tortured, and eventually he's going to be crucified. So what he decides to do is many, many of us, I think, would do the same. If we knew our life was coming to an abrupt ending, we'd say, hey, let's gather together all of our loved ones. Let's gather together all of our closest companions, and let's share one last meal. Give me one last opportunity to impart wisdom, to maybe give them words of affirmation, to pour my heart out to them. And that's essentially what's happening in the Last Supper. He's gathering all his folks around. And then Jesus does something that's completely unexpected. Jesus, as we would say today, drops a bomb. The disciples are eating and Jesus says something that completely rattles them to the core. Now, I want to begin reading in Luke chapter 22, verses 19, to see exactly what he said. And it says this in verse 19. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup, the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. So for a second, let's put on our thinking caps and let's imagine what it would be like to be sitting in that room for a second. You know, these men have watched Jesus heal the sick. These men have watched Jesus raise the dead. They've watched miraculous things. Him feeding thousands with what originally was given to him, a couple loaves. And he looks at them and he says, one of you who has experienced so many things in life, we have done so many things together, is going to betray me. How in the world would you respond? Maybe that's happened to you before. 
Maybe someone has said something to you unexpectedly and you find yourself where you're just completely undone. You find yourself completely bewildered and you think, I don't even know how to respond. I'm speechless. Maybe it came in the form of, I don't love you anymore. I'm leaving. Or it's cancer. Or I'm sorry, we couldn't do anything. They passed away. There's these certain events in our lives, these milestones, these defining moments that happen to us. And this is one of those moments that's happening to the disciples. Sometimes in life, things affect us so deeply that we become completely disoriented and we do not even know how to respond. So the disciples eventually, after hearing this news, I think the human side of them becomes to, comes out and comes to the surface. And let's take a look at verse 23 and see what happens. Verse 23 says, they began to question among themselves which of them it might be and who would do this. The disciples are, they're confused. They can't believe it. Who in the world would have the audacity to betray the rabbi, our teacher? Who could do such a horrible thing? And what slowly starts out as the blame game digresses into something that's much worse. Verse 24 says this, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Kind of a weird transition there, right? How do we get from one of you is going to be betraying me to let's argue on which of us is the greatest? How do we get from point A to point B? But if you think about it, it's really natural. If you, if you understand the sinful human nature and how we respond, I can see it now. One of the disciples saying, well, you know what? I know it wasn't me. It couldn't have been me. I would never betray Jesus because I was with Jesus when he did this and that, and I would never do that to him. And then another disciple would step forward and he said, well, then it couldn't have been me because I did X, Y, and Z and I saw him perform this miracle and we healed these sick. I would never, ever betray our king. But I'll tell you, who was the most outspoken of the entire group? I'll give you one guess. It was Peter. He stands up in front of the disciples and he says, listen, this is my interpretation. It couldn't have been me. If you remember, I was the one who received the revelation that he was the Christ, right? It couldn't have been me. I was the one who went up with him at the Mount of Transfiguration. It couldn't have been me. I was one of his closest disciples. I was the part of the coveted inner three. And the last time I remember, when you chumps were sitting on the boat, I got out and walked on the water. It couldn't have been me. But the problem with what Peter's doing right now is that he's drawing his case, he's drawing his identity, and he's relying his, on his strength found in himself. I did this. I did that. I was here. Which is a scary place to be. So in a moment's notice, we've somehow gone from Jesus pouring his heart out saying, listen, one of you is going to betray me, one of my trusted friends, to now Jesus has to step out of, okay, I'm pouring my heart out, put back the, the teacher cap back on, and begin to teach. Listen, guys, greatness doesn't come in the form of accomplishment or achievement. It comes through servanthood, right? That's why he says, whoever wants to be first among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be great must be your slave. 
just as the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus once again begins to redirect. But really what begins to make this passage interesting to me is what Jesus says in verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you. It's interesting now he's not calling him Peter anymore. Did you notice that? You know, Peter was the name that he gave him. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Not even the gates of hell will stand against it. And you'll be called Peter. But now he doesn't call him Peter. He's going back to Simon. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. See, I would describe this as some obvious foreshadowing that has taken place. But Jesus is essentially saying to Simon, you know what? Satan's coming after you and it's gonna be the ride of your life. There's gonna be some temptations and a trial and a shaking that's gonna occur in your life that is going to rock your world. It's interesting to me that Jesus knows full well that Satan is coming against one of his followers and Jesus does not say no. He steps back and he says, let's let it happen. See, unfortunately for so many of us as Christians, we believe that a good Christian life equals the absence of conflict and hardship. If I'm in God's will, if I'm doing what the Bible says, if I'm trying to be a good person, A plus B equals I'm gonna have an easy life, temptations aren't gonna come against me, and anything that's hard is of the devil. Wrong. If you really begin to examine the life of Christ and most of his followers, the opposite is true. That's why I believe when Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he has this thorn in his flesh that is literally ruining him. He cries out to God and he asks God to heal him. And what does God say? No, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Jesus begins to see that the devil is coming against Peter. He's got this pride and there's gonna be a shaking that's gonna take, occur in his life. So we get back to our story and Jesus has told his disciples that one of you is going to betray me. Peter steps up with total boldness and he says, God, I will never betray you. I'll never turn my back on you. And the other disciples say, yeah, yeah, what he said. We're with him. And Jesus says, you know, Peter, it's interesting that you say that because this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will betray me three different times. And Peter responds by saying, Lord, even if I have to die, I will never betray you. So let's fast forward our story and we find ourselves in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is approached by his betrayer, Judas Iscariot. They begin to take him. And a lot of people think that Peter is a coward. He gets kind of a bad rap because they think, what kind of man would deny Christ three times in front of a servant girl? But I can tell you this with full certainty that Peter, although be it a fool at times, was no coward. What kind of coward, when approached by a fully armed army, would take out a sword, one of two that they had, try to kill the commander of that army's right-hand man, try to cut off his head, miss, and cut off his ear. A fool, yes, but a coward, no. See, Peter's greatest problem isn't that he's a coward. 
it's that once again, he finds his strength in himself. So Jesus has taken his disciples' flee. He's falsely accused. He's put in a trial that, according to the legal standards of that day, should have never even taken place. Beaten, tortured, and eventually crucified. Every one of Jesus' disciples, everyone that said, Lord, we'd stand next to you to the death, we would never betray you, will always be by your side. Every one of them fled. They all failed. Many of you know the story. Jesus crucified. Three days later, he's resurrected. And after Jesus is resurrected, he has the opportunity to have a conversation with Peter in what I believe is one of the most significant conversations that takes place in all the Bible. Unfortunately for many people that have an English translation, I think the magnitude of the conversation is somewhat lost. But let's go there. It's found in John chapter John 21 Verse 15, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Everyone say more than these. When he says more than these, he's referring to the other disciples. Remember, Peter was the one who was outspoken. He was the one that said, even if everyone else flees, I will stand next to you. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than these? But the word he uses for love is agapeo meaning unconditional love, the kind of love that someone would lay down their life for. So you can kind of understand the tension beginning to build. And Peter responds. He says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. But it's interesting, the word that Peter uses when responding to Jesus is not agapeo, but the word that he uses is phileo. Peter has lost the right to respond to Jesus by saying, yes, Lord, I love you so much that I'll lay down my life for you because he had the opportunity and he failed. So he responds to Jesus by saying, yes, Lord, I phileo love you, meaning that I love you with a tender affection. Jesus goes on to him and say again in verse 16, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Do you agapeo me? And he replied, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And finally, in verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? But yet this time he does not use the agapeo love. He used the phileo love. And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I believe something significant happens in that exchange. I believe Peter breaks. I believe that the love of Christ, the grace and the mercy of Christ has taken this man who the shaking occurred in his life, he failed and he's beginning to restore him and build him back up. And I believe that at that moment, Jesus understands that for the first time in Peter's life, no longer is he drawing from the strength that is found in himself, but he's drawing from the strength of the person of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, Jesus understands that Peter now knows, or Jesus now knows that Peter has what it takes to give up his life for him. And the reason that we know that is just a couple of verses later, he goes on and tells him, 
that this is how you're gonna die for me. Which is kind of strange, isn't it? Jesus, them, them having kind of this reconciling moment, and then he said, oh, good. Well, this is how you're gonna die on my behalf. But think about it. Jesus is now reaffirming Peter, saying, you know what? Your days of betrayal, they're done. Your days of running from me, they're over. You're gonna stand your ground, and you're gonna give your life on my behalf. You now have what it takes, and upon you, I will build my church. What an amazing statement. You know, this evening, I hate to be the bearer of bad news for you, but there's gonna be things that happen in your life that will shake you. The beauty of a shaking is that it removes all those things in our life that are dead. Maybe you're here tonight and you're going through one of those moments as we speak. And the question that we must ask ourselves, the question that Peter had to ask himself is where do I find my strength? When you get that bad report from the doctor, where do I find my strength? When the bank, despite my best efforts, takes back my home, where do I find my strength? When you find yourself overwhelmed with feelings of depression, feelings of loneliness, feelings of anxiety, when you find yourself at the end of your rope, you ask yourself, where do I find my strength? And I can tell you with the utmost certainty, the utmost confidence tonight, that your strength does not come from the American dream. Your strength does not come from the picket fence, the 2.5 kids, the bigger paycheck. It comes from knowing who Jesus is and allowing that knowledge to permeate every single area of your life. Tonight, as we close and as the band starts making their way back up, I wanna, I wanna give you three practical things. I don't wanna just come here and try to encourage you and tell you a story from scripture. I wanna give you some, some handles that you can walk away tonight and you can implement these things in your life. And tonight, before we leave, I wanna give you three practical ways that you can rely upon Jesus and you can allow him to be your foundation in the storms of life. Number one, the first way you can do that is you can allow Jesus to be your foundation in the calm. So many of us, we're the type of Christians that, man, when, when the stuff hits the fan and when our lives are falling apart, we are in the front row of the church. We're reading our Bible every day. Our prayer life is alive and well. But you know what? When there's money in the bank and when the kids are healthy, God, we're good. Thanks. And that's really a sad state. So many of us, we just treat God as a stress ball. But yet he's saying, you know what? I wanna be the Lord of your life in every single area. I wanna be the Lord of your life when you're going through those valleys, when you're at the toughest time, but I wanna be there with you when you're winning and when things are great. God wants a relationship with us outside of our personal crisis. And we can fall in love with him more so in those high times, just as much as those low times, we'll begin to see something significant and supernatural happen in your life. I believe it. So allowing God to be your God, to be Lord of your life in the calms. The second thing we can do to allow Jesus to be our foundation in the storm is that we can recognize the fact that you are never in control, but he is. 
What a positive thought. What an uplifting thought. Congratulations. Thanks for coming. You have absolutely no control over your life. But it's true. Think about it. We're just one meeting away from our, with our boss from getting fired. We're just one phone call away from that personal tragedy. We're just one news report away from seeing that thing we've worked our entire lives, that retirement account, just go up in smoke. When you really boil it down, we, we don't have any control in our lives, but we serve the one who does. We need to quit pretending that we have the control and we need to begin to rely upon Jesus in a new and powerful way. The third thing that we can do to allow God to be that foundation through the storm is allow him to give your pain purpose. At my church, we kind of have this, st- this saying that goes, life is a test. Everything that happens in life is a test. How will you respond to the test? Will you pass a test or will you fail it? Much like we see with Peter, God allows certain things to happen in our life. God allows these shakings to occur because he wants to remove that junk. He wants to remove the sin. He wants to remove the pride. He wants to remove this false sense of security. And he wants us to begin to rely upon him. The problem is that when we don't completely rely upon God and we don't allow him to walk us through those storms, the pain that we experience in life is completely pointless. But when we begin to surrender to God and we invite him into our pain and we invite him into our mess and when we invite him into our junk, AKA our lives at times, he begins to give our pain purpose. Much like an athlete, they punish their bodies, they, they work out, they run, they place themselves in situations of discomfort because they know at the end of the day, because of that hard work, I wanna be stronger, I'm gonna be faster, and I'm gonna perform better. Recognize, like it says in Hebrews 12, 11, that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That maybe instead of God being the, the mean kid in the sky with the magnifying glass trying to fry an ant, maybe he loves you so much that he's allowing you to go through a difficult time because he wants you to be more like him. Now that is something worth thinking about. And when we carry that weight, it's pointless. But when we begin to recognize it, you know what? Maybe my light, my luck isn't bad, but maybe this is a test and I'm gonna win, I'm gonna pass. It gives it, it gives it purpose. God wants to teach you. He wants to be your God through the storm. And he wants to be your God through the calm. He wants to give your pain purpose. He wants to do miraculous things in in your life. And he wants you to recognize that you are never in control, but he is. And I believe that when we can do those things, that God can do something with a church. He can take a group of ragtag people and he can change the world. And you know what? I don't say it because it can sell a t-shirt. I say it because we saw it modeled in scripture. 12 of just the most cantankerous bunch of dudes you've ever seen that went out and they did it. They changed the world. Let's pray. God, Lord, we love you and we thank you for who you are.